Hello everyone, um, Pastor Sean here. Uh, as you're aware, we had to cancel our service this Sunday because of the coronavirus. Um, and because of that, we had to think of um, new ways in order for us to be able to continue on through the word together. Um, and one of the ways that many churches are trying to keep their community um, together is through video sermons. Um, and because of that, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go into Isaiah. We're still going to preach from there. And we're going to um, continue to learn together what it is that God wants us to learn. So without much further ado, I hope that everyone is well um, I hope that we're all continuing to be quarantined for the betterment of each other and for the society. And I want to encourage all of you that despite everything that's happening and despite having to do things a little bit differently, um, God's still in control. And no matter what may happen, he's in control. So I want to thank Bonnie and Linda. They're not here, but I have to. It's normal. And I would encourage all of you to please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to start with verse 8 and we're going to read 8 through 10. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate. Large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. So the parable that we just heard about leads us to the particulars of what bad fruit looks like. Isaiah begins with the first woe to the people. This very emphatic word is both used as a judgment and also laments. In this case, it is really both. The prophet is lamenting the people's sin, which leads to judgment. Indeed, this first woe is dealing with individuals who join house to house and field to field. The question many of you are wondering is, what does this mean? Well, it implies individuals who are buying up land from their poorer neighbors. In doing this, they join house to house, implying that they are building large houses similar to a mansion that we would say, to dwell in. Meanwhile, the field to field shows how much land they've been accumulating. That there is no more room shows that the poor are being overcome by the greed of the wealthy. While the wealthy should be looking at their poor neighbors and taking care of them, instead they are using lawful means in order to gain more for themselves while leaving their neighbors destitute. Hence, instead of a group of people living comfortably, comfortably, living in the space, there is only one wealthy inhabitant for all the space. Thus, their many houses will become desolate. Despite being blessed previously with fortune, now the rich will be without. All their great houses will be desolate. They will not be inhabited. In other words, despite their current splendor, they will become ruins. Likewise, the land itself will yield little for them. Ten acres of vineyards would provide only one bath of wine, which is approximately about eight gallons. Likewise, a homer of seed is approximately six bushels, yet it yields an ephah, which is the dry version of the bath, which comes to about three pecks. Clearly, the discrepancy is plain. 
Because of their greed, in the end, all they will have and all that they have accumulated will become nothing. Now we come to verses 11 through 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. So this second woe deals with the decadent lifestyle of the wealthy. Not only are they taking advantage of the poor among them, they are also succumbing to strong drink. By doing this, they are showing their debauchery. We notice how as soon as they rise, they are into drink and continue to do so well into the evening. Thus, it's a lifestyle which they continue to live out day by day. Despite having the abundant gifts of wine and song and feast, the people are ignorant of the greater gift, which is God himself. He who has done so much and whose works are mighty has told them he will be their God. Yet, they do not know God. They have no concept of him and all he does. The very God who bestows the gifts is the one who they ignore. So then we come to verse 13. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Each of the woes that are in this section are meant to show us what is considered to be bad fruit in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the woes are answered with two therefores which correspond to those woes. In other words, the result of their bad fruit will be judgment against them. We notice how the first woe deals with their exile, a promise given to the people for their breaking of the law. It is for their lack of knowledge in particular. The knowledge here represents both intellectual knowledge as well as the personal knowledge which comes with being known. They do know God. They do not know God, nor do they have a relationship with him. It is made painfully obvious in how they treat one another. Despite the law which commanded the people to have the land returned to them during the year of Jubilee, and despite the people who are meant to watch over the poor, that's the wealthy, instead they trample them. As such, those who are honored will go without food, and the multitude will be parched with thirst. In other words, the people will ultimately go without what it is they need in order to survive, let alone thrive. That is, even though they once feasted and had all these great things, in the end, it's all going to be taken away. So now we come to verses 14 through 17. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich." 
Just as the people were enlarging their houses, their lands, and their own mouths with food and drink, here we find the only thing that will be satisfied is Sheol, the place of the dead. It will open up its mouth so that all those who have mistreated others and have essentially made a mockery of God's grace and mercy will go down into it. Human pride is a terrible thing. It is what leads us to our downfall. So it is, when such a judgment comes upon the people, the result is that they are humbled. They finally see what is truly great, and that is God and God alone. It isn't in their own personal fame or fortune or abilities. It is God who is most wonderful. And those who once thought they were so high and so worthy of esteem will find themselves in death instead. Indeed, the Lord is exalted in justice and God is holy in righteousness. God is a just God. It is from Him we learn the difference between what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. Whereas we exalt in ourselves, God is is exalted in what is right. When we act in such a way, we exalt the God and Lord of all by whom we learn what justice is. But not only this, God is holy in righteousness. To be holy means to be cut, to be separate. God is not like us. Because in his very character and nature lies righteousness. Goodness itself is defined not because of some abstract idea, but because God himself is good. He is by his very nature just and righteous. As such, the emphasis of his holiness is seen in his character. Because of this, the mouth of man is shut against God. And they will face judgment before him. Meanwhile, the very land which they hoarded, the very earth which they sought to gain control of, it's going to fall to wild animals. Those who are mere wanderers will eat among the houses of those who were once so mighty and powerful in the land. Why? Because of their pride. Because of their selfishness. Because of their refusal to see God in who he is, and because they refuse to be humbled in this life. Alright, so the main point of these verses are to show the bad fruit of the people. They are accepting the trampling of the poor and the decadent lifestyle as the definition of the good life. As such, when they are confronted with the holy God, they will be brought low because they will find all they sought was worthless in comparison to him. If only they had sought justice and righteousness, then they would know their God. But instead, they show they do not know him at all by what they do. Now this leads to the application point of today's text. And in today's text, we find the result of what some bad fruit would look like for the world. This concept of bad fruit is found from the parable before this section, which details how instead of producing good fruit, the vineyard produced bad fruit. The good fruit is identified as justice and righteousness. Bad fruit is now partially here identified with greed and decadence, 
which leads ultimately to injustice and unrighteousness. As it is, this is what the people were doing. Despite already being called to love one another, in the end, the people were living in greed and selfishness, which led to this decadence. Instead of boasting in the ones who were living rightly in the knowledge of God, the people were looking toward the boastful and arrogant, finding esteem in them. We are often in danger of this in our own culture as well. There are many individuals who are incredibly influential via their affluence. This influence can lead to them getting away with many things which are questionable at best and downright immoral at worst. Indeed, there are plenty of cases in our society where those who are struggling to provide for their families end up losing their jobs because of, let's say, corporate greed. Or those corporations end up giving the greater bulk of their financial gains to their CEOs while those with less go without. Is this illegal? No. Does that make it morally or ethically good? No. Does this mean corporations should make it all equal, let's say? I wouldn't say that either. What the critique is dealing with are those who are incredibly wealthy, always needing and wanting more wealth for themselves. There is no reason why an individual who already makes millions of dollars, needs a few million more, when there are individuals who work for them, making far less in comparison. Yet this is what we see happen frequently in our world. Ultimately, the rich end up getting richer, while the worker, the laborer, and those at the bottom continue to receive less, and often go without. Does this mean this should be illegal? Probably not. This isn't even about, let's say, socialism versus capitalism. I know some people are going there. This is strictly about those with the most always needing more for themselves, even if it is at the cost of those who are less wealthy. This kind of ideal, this kind of understanding will only lead to a greater ruin in the end. That is the real critique here. It's not against wealth. It's not against riches. It's against injustice. It's against unrighteousness. It's against how and the why such individuals make these profits and keep these profits and will do anything, even trampling on others, in order to attain these profits. Unfortunately, we see such tactics not only in the corporate world, but also within Christianity. When we hear false teachers proclaim, if you send us X amount of money, you will be blessed. We hear it so often by those who would call themselves ministers, those who would call themselves pastors on TV, who proclaim such things, and yet they are only taking more and more from the poor. You see, if we are to look at the world and critique it, we must also look at ourselves and critique ourselves within the faith. There are teachers who claim to be of the faith, who take the name of Christ just to make a profit off of his name. Such individuals are nothing more than wolves, and we need to be cautious to make sure we call them as such. Their God is not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of the Scriptures. Their God is wealth, is mammon, is greed, and they will receive the judgment for their deceptions. But you will ask, 
What then? Who can be saved? Because there are many of us who look at the corporate world and their greed and look at the false teachers and their greed and we see their wealth and we see it as a blessing. We will wonder, if God has blessed them, then surely what they do is well. It's good. Well, that's an interesting thought. And I'm sure those in ancient Israel thought much the same thing at the injustice they were experiencing and dealing with and accepting. But let's consider something that happened with Jesus once. Consider the following verses. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, the ruler scene is an interesting case study, isn't it? He is an individual who would make a great disciple. He follows the rule book. He has wealth and he has been blessed. Yet what do we find Jesus telling him? Sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor and follow me. Notice, Jesus does not say, give the money to me and my ministry. (laughs) He doesn't say that, does he? But to the poor, the poor. Still, he walks away despondent, the young man, this ruler. And Jesus, in reflection, says that famous, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. In Matthew and Mark, we find the reaction of the disciples more than in here in Luke. Um, And is one of astonishment and amazement when Jesus says this. Sometimes we forget that they were like us, those disciples, right? They were probably looking at the rich young ruler and they're thinking, great, come and join us. Instead, they recognize the problem that we might have. They see an individual blessed by God who follows the law and hence their reaction, who then can be saved? The answer is those who know God. It is the same with the people in Isaiah's time. Those who know God will experience the greatest forms of justice and righteousness. Those who actively pursue God with their minds and those who seek to know him personally, they will be the ones who won't allow the wiles and the seductions of the world to overwhelm them. 
They may be rich or poor, but in the end, they will find their true wealth not in the world, but in God and in knowing him. Now, we want to be careful not to associate, let's say, wealth with greed. The same way we do not want to associate, let's say, alcohol with decadence. Because the truth is, there are good, just people who are wealthy. And there are those who partake of alcohol who aren't living this intoxicated lifestyle the way that the scripture describes it. Indeed, we even have a good example of such an individual in the Old Testament. Boaz in Ruth, if we remember, he was a wealthy man. Yet we also remember him to be a just man. He loved God. He walked uprightly before God. Because he was wealthy doesn't take away from this, but instead we find him using his wealth in a way to further glorify God. Consider what he does for Ruth. Ruth had gone to the fields in order to glean something which was lawful, as the Lord commanded them to care for the poor and the sojourner by allowing them to pick from the edges of the fields and the leftovers from the harvest of the fields. And that's in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, and uh, Leviticus 23, 22, in case you're interested. Boaz, by providence, uh, happened to visit the field where she was gleaning. And it's really interesting when he gets there, he starts to talk to all of those who are in his field, all of his servants, saying, the Lord be with you. And all of them respond with, the Lord also with you. May the Lord bless you. Um, It's beautiful. But it's in that moment, though, he sees Ruth. Eventually, we find him say, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. And that's Ruth 2, 14-16. Now as it is, There is no reason for Boaz to let Ruth have this extra amount. In fact, there is nothing which would cause him to essentially take a loss, profit-wise, in order to help this widow who was a foreign woman. Yet what do we find? We find him being compassionate on the marginalized. We find him not lording over her his wealth, his esteem, his abundance. Instead, he provides for her and for Naomi more than what was even necessary for them. This, this is the kind of response God is looking for with his people. He provides for his people. He blesses them. To some, he gives a great abundance in this life. It's true. The response should be not to hoard it for ourselves, but to seek to wisely bless others, especially those who belong to the faith. The old hymn, we may remember it, they'll know we are Christians by our love. It comes from Christ who said, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that comes from John 13, 31 through 35. This is the great virtue of the Christian faith. It is love. Love is the key. Love for each other is the cure. We only know what love is because Christ first loved us. In knowing Christ, we know the love of God for us. And in this way, we can love each other. Part of that love is to provide for each other, to encourage one another, to watch over one another in this love, which is bestowed by Christ through his spirit to us. That is the secret to it all. How do we love? How do we find justice and righteousness? How do Christian CEOs of multi-million dollar corporations, how do wealthy Christians respond to the world? We find the answer in the very character of God. We find it in Him alone. Only then will we find peace with God, each other, and ourselves. Only in Him will we ever find the response to the internal greed which comes from our sinful states. We choose to not live a decadent lifestyle. We choose to not put more profits over people. We choose to be wise, kind, and loving with what we have because God did not live in decadence. And God does not put profits over people. And because God is wise and kind and loving toward us. Because God is holy, so we seek To be holy. It won't be in the social justices of the day this world is fixed. It won't be in, let's say, socialism or capitalism or some worldly ideology. No, it will be in Christ. It will be in us knowing God. Only then will the world be changed. Only in him will the darkness be overwhelmed by light. It will not be our light, but the light of Christ, the light of God himself in this dark world. So, be encouraged. Whatever your state, whether rich or poor, seek to follow God and know God. To utilize your blessing, not for self, but for the glory of God. To bless others around you, just as God has been the one to bless you. To seek justice and righteousness in the world. Justice and righteousness found in the very character of our good God. Nothing else could ever suffice to fulfill the constant need other than God himself. So cling to him. Cling to him alone. Naturally, this all leads us to the gospel. I mean, the gospel of Jesus is found from Genesis to Revelation. It's found right here in the book of Isaiah. Um, and the gospel, I mean, it's, it's a worldview. It has so many different parts. Well, four parts to be exact. It all starts with our origins. We were all created in the image of God. Every single one of us, man and woman, we were created to be his image bearers. And while he created the stars and while he created the heavens and these beautiful things all over around us, On this planet, the greatest thing he created was humanity. And because of that, all of humanity 
has dignity, sanctity, and worth to life. No matter who they are, from the smallest to the largest, from the youngest to the oldest, each one of us has intrinsic value because we're made in God's image. But then that leads us to the problem, right? The problem is the fall. And we see the effects of the fall here in this text. We see the effects of the fall when we see the people of Israel back in Isaiah's day who decided that greed, fortune, profits would be more important than people. Their mansions and their fields were more important than their neighbors. And we see it even today in our own world because guess what? The same thing happens today. We live in debauched lifestyles. We see the greed of people and how it hurts everyone. And do you know what? The truth is, is that just like the people in Isaiah's day were worthy of judgment, so are we. Because we still cling to it ourselves. We still do all the things which cause us to sin, to have this separation between ourselves and God because of this sin. And we are guilty. No matter what we may think, we're guilty of sin. Now, if God is a just God, then he should punish the wicked. And you might be thinking, well, at least I'm not one of those corporate CEOs who steals all this money from people. I might not be one of those bankers from 2008, right? You're thinking that. But the truth is, you've lied. I've lied. You've stolen. I've stolen. I've worshipped other things before God, and so have you. And you know what? We're worthy of judgment ourselves. So the question is, how do we escape judgment? How is it that we are able to be redeemed? And the answer is, is not what you think. A lot of times people think, oh, well, if I just work harder, if I'm just better at life, if I'm just good, if I'm righteous, then everything will be okay. And the answer that the Bible gives is no, because you are still guilty. All because someone who commits a crime does something good doesn't make them absolved from that crime. And so it is, when we are guilty, God must judge us. And that's when we can recognize that we are in the same boat as the people in Isaiah. But, thanks be to God because he brought redemption through Jesus Christ. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in time, space, history, and flesh, we find redemption. And it's not in our work, not in the work of Pastor Sean. It's in the work of Jesus It's through what he has accomplished that we can be redeemed. And so you and I can rejoice today because we have faith in Christ. We who have faith in Christ don't have any need to fear God. We don't have any reason to fear anything because we have God on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And it's all because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus we can understand justice and righteousness and we can show it to the world around us. If we don't believe we deserve judgment, 
But God has promised that those who believe in his son will never face judgment. And they will have eternal life and eternal peace with him. And that's where it's all heading. For those who believe, there is life. For those who don't believe, there is death. There's judgment. But we believe. And so we know that what we are looking forward to is glory. The moment we're looking forward to is that moment that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians when the veil is lifted. And though we may have seen this through a mirror darkly, when we finally encounter God face to face, the true love of all, it is something to behold. So, I know that this world is, seems so in upheaval right now. I know that this coronavirus is scary. I even think it might even be judgment against us. But I also know that if judgment does come upon the world, that the Christian response is to still love. And so I encourage all of us to be obedient. Don't be decadent. Don't be like the people in Isaiah's time. Instead, seek to be like Christ. Seek to honor Him with your life. Seeking obedience to Him. Trust me, this world, it's a crazy place right now. But we know that there is one who can fix it. And that's God. And we know he can fix it because he fixed us. So how about we pray together? And then you can continue on with your day. Father, we thank you so much for the prophet Isaiah. We thank you so much for those who came before us. Because Lord, it's through them that you have shown and revealed yourself to be a good, true, and holy God. And so Lord, we ask that we would continue to seek to know you that we would continue to seek to understand you and your ways and that we would desire to know your righteousness and your justice, that we would seek to be a holy people because you are a holy God. Lord, you are worthy of everything that we are. And no matter what may happen in this world, we know that you are in control. So Lord, during this time of crisis, when this whole world seems to be turned upside down, We ask that you would give us peace. We ask that we would seek to honor you. That you would give us strength to honor you. And Lord, we thank you because you have held us. And you will continue to hold us as long as we place our faith in Christ. And so Lord, it's in his name that we do pray. Amen. All right. God bless everyone. And hopefully I'll see you soon. Bye.